Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 607 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Wednesday, February the 16th, 2011, and today we're going to do a listener call show. I know this is normally a Friday thing. But I've had illness I've dealt with, I've had time off back when we, the holidays, and all of that has led up to a big backlog in calls. Not to mention that this is probably my favorite type of show to do. I love these shows. I, I, I'm really looking towards maybe a time, uh, coming up soon where we can do some live call-in shows where you guys call in live. Uh, but for now, this is the best way to do it. If you'd like to be on the air, it's really easy to do, and odds are, if you make a call, you'll get on the air. All you have to do is pick up your phone and dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. Leave your message. You get about two minutes to do that before the system cuts you off. Uh, so have your, your question ready to go and uh, make it in the format of the callers you'll hear today, and odds are you'll get on the air. might take two to three weeks, uh, so uh, just be aware of that, because I do these shows generally once a week. We'll try to do two this week to get caught up. And you guys are coming up with some great calls, man. I've been screening the calls, and I've gotten to a point where, unless it's a technical issue, like I can't hear you, or you try to call with your window open in the car or something like that, I haven't, screen, I haven't screened out a call in a very long time. I've pretty much taken them in the order that they're received, and they're all great calls, so thanks for that. Before we take your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today is MERS-Radio.com. That's M-U-R-S-Radio.com. Rob there is, uh, is a great guy, and uh, he provides great support because, unlike a lot of folks, he doesn't have... Everything plus the kitchen sink. He has a small assortment of MERS equipment and a few other items. And that means he knows his equipment cold and he can give you the most amazing support because if it can be done with his equipment, he knows how to do it blindfolded. So he's a great guy to buy from and a great guy to deal with after the sale if you need help and support or a great guy to deal with before the sale if you need help picking out what you need. Now, why do I love MERS? I love MERS because I believe communications is so important, especially within your own group. And MERS gives me these handheld radios that have about a two-mile range so we can communicate all over our property in Arkansas, certainly in the neighborhood around here in Arlington. But in addition to that, it blends security into communications. I have these motion detectors set up. I know if anything from somebody's prowling around my house at night doesn't belong there to the dogs trying to get out of the gate. Because I have these motion detectors set up in these different areas. And if the, you know, for the instance of the dogs trying to get out of the yard, I'll hear alert sector two. Or if somebody's going into the backyard at night through the gate, I'll hear alert sector two. 
then I can let the dog in the backyard, and the person will wish they had picked a different backyard uh, while I go around front with the 870. So I really appreciate the multifunctionality of the MERS system, and it's what sold me on it. It's why I invested in it. It's why I think you should, too. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, you know, we talk a lot about uh, silver and gold around here. Well, there's a third class, I'll call it a class of precious metal. I call it copper jacketed lead. And I think that should be part of your stores as well. And if you're going to do that, the best place I know to do that online today is bulkammo.com. When it comes to your common calibers that we all seem to have, like 9mm, 45, 40 Smith & Wesson, 3006, uh, 223, or 5.56, depending on how you want to call it, uh, your 762 stuff, your 762 by 39 stuff, all of that stuff, you'll get the best prices you'll find anywhere and incredibly fast shipping and great service at BulkAmmo.com. Remember, all of our sponsors can be found at the survivalpodcast.com in the right-hand margin of our website. It's the best way to get to them then you know you're dealing with a true survival podcast sponsor and not an imposter. I want to say something on the air I haven't said in a long time, because I don't think a lot of people know this. If there is a person that is a sponsor of my show, they are a personal endorsement by me with a check by the moderator staff. Every sponsor we've ever brought on, they apply to be a sponsor. Can't just be one. I put them in front of the moderators. There's about 24, 26 people now. And then they go to be the Better Business Bureau, they check eBay reputations, they go and they tear the vendor apart. If two or more moderators say, no, I can't take their money. And in spite of that, I have people asking me to advertise on the show now, and I could not let an advertiser on the site the next 18, eight, eight months if I want to. There's one maybe that won't renew, I don't know, most of them stick around. Because it's that type of an exclusive program. I want you to realize something. You do not get to be a sponsor on the Survival Podcast unless you are a top-notch company that I will personally vouch for. This is not just selling advertising. And I don't talk about that much, but once in a while I want to remind you guys of that. Next up, I want you guys to check the gear shop out. A lot of you have probably seen the new layout, but we have all, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff's back in there available for orders again. And, uh, I ordered some more copper coins for myself last night. We just got 2,000 in. They're gonna sell out fast. If you haven't gotten copper or you want more of the copper coins, you're gonna wanna get them now, cause they're gonna sell, I mean, there's only 2,000. People buy them 50, 100 at a shot. So I would estimate within a week we'll be sold out on copper again. Uh, really, really beautiful coins. And we've got some other stuff being ordered to kind of restock the store as well. The big thing now is when you when you buy something, you set up an account, your shipping is automatically set up, everything's trackable. Uh, they've done a major upgrade to the gear shop, Tiffany and Rich, and I really appreciate the work they've done there. So uh, give them some business. Remember, you're part of the MSB, you now get 10% off all your orders. The code is in your members brigade. And with that, I'll remind you real quick about the members brigade. You want to support this show? You want to do it at 18 cents an episode? Join the members brigade. You get a bunch of discounts from about 25 different vendors. You get a bunch of exclusive content, uh, and you're supporting the show. I'll leave it at that today. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack. This is John calling you from Smyrna, South Carolina, South Carolina's gun capital. And uh, my question is, ATF, Dextron ATF uh, transmission fluid, would you recommend using it as a gun lube and protectant? Thanks. Well, there's a question I didn't expect when I started screening calls this morning. Uh, an interesting one. I'm not sure how you mean it. If you mean uh, what I see using it in a time where you didn't have anything else is a good idea, the answer would be absolutely yes. 
If you mean would I use it as an alternative to something like uh, you know military CLP uh, or or any good quality gun oil, I don't know. I don't think it would do any harm. Let me put it to you that way. It's certainly a hell of a lot less expensive than most made-for-firearms uh, lubricants. It's designed to work inside an automatic transmission, and as a mechanic, I can tell you. That's one of the harshest environments there is for any lubricant or fluid in your vehicle. It's uh it's a tough world existing on the inside of an automatic transmission. It, they do a lot of things um automated that really were never made. It's really a wonder uh that automatic transmissions work at all if you actually understand how complicated they are. About the only place that's nastier is a differential. Uh, and that you know heavy uh, heavyweight uh, lubricant for your differentials, and that that stuff stinks. And I wouldn't want to put that on anything. Uh, don't even like messing with differentials unless I absolutely have to. Um, but yeah, I mean it would probably work just fine. I, I again I can't see any harm coming from it. Uh, it's not what I personally do. After you've made this call, I'm not going to run out and buy a couple quarts of it and start using it for that. It is something we do have as part of our preps because we have uh, vehicles that use Dextron to, to uh, transmission fluid, and uh, we also have vehicles that use Type F transmission fluid, which is the, the you know the Ford, of course. So, um, so I, I think that maybe it's a good multi-purpose lubricant, and I think it could be used for a lot of things if it's part of your preps. And if you want to use it on your guns, I don't see how it's going to hurt anything. It's not corrosive. Um, it's very, it's a very um, a viscous protectant, and it certainly will ward off rust and do a good job of lubricating parts. You do have me wondering if it would do a better job with you know lubricating uh, functioning parts of a semi-auto without becoming as gummed up as some other lubricants. I'd have to test that. But my instinct is that it may, because it's designed to operate in an environment where, where um, becoming too viscous is an issue. Uh, but the other thing you have to remember about that is it operates in that environment under a lot more heat than even uh, a heavily used semi-automatic is going to generate. So it may not perform as well as you would expect it to because the heat level that, that has that thinning action on it, uh, it may not be sufficient to, to deal with some of the gumming. But it's something we could test. It's something we could certainly take and, you know, completely clean and lubricate, strip down a bolt on an AR or an AK or any weapon and um, lubricate it with a conventional lubricant fire 150 rounds through it at, at high speed, maybe throw some wolf ammo in there, something's kind of dirty to begin with, and take a look at it, clean it, see how, how it's gummed up, are there any malfunctions, how, you know, how is it, what is, what's it overall, the assessment of it, completely strip it down and clean it again, lubricate it with uh, Dextron 2, and run the same test. That would be the best way to see if you're going to get an advantage there. But for general lubrication and protectant, I can't see any harm. You certainly can do it. I'm just not going to recommend it over conventional stuff without more research. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Love the show. It's truly changed my outlook. I slowly began my prepping with food and water, storage and rotation, uh, and so forth. However, here's my biggest hurdle. I got myself into a 91 F-250 with an interest rate of 26%. Uh, payments over 400 a month. Uh, it's because my credit score is uh, in the ballpark of 560. I take full responsibility for that. I've made a lot of mistakes in the past. However, I am working on trying to get that taken care of. 
I'm making payments on a lot of my past bills, uh, trying to uh, get them off my record and improve my credit rating and and uh, so on. Uh, but right now, I really need to get out of this truck. It's it's hindering my uh, possibility of uh, purchasing land and and getting myself back on track. A question is, how would you recommend I get out of this truck, um, get out of this uh, contract or, or these payments? There's over 12000 still owed. But I want to do it right uh, to not completely destroy my credit any longer. Anyways, I appreciate uh, your time. I appreciate everything you do. Take it easy. Man, I'll tell you, I have a tendency sometimes to beat up on people for doing stupid things with debt, but not in this case. All, all I can do is I just feel for you, man. Um, this is a tough one. This is not an easy answer, and I'm just going to give you some ideas, and you're going to have to go from there. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but if everything I just heard from you was right and you didn't mess anything up, and it is a 91, not a 2001, and unless it's some kind of specially equipped you know, you know, truck that, that you can actually get some money for, um, I'm almost tempted to tell you to go out and find a cheap vehicle uh, for two to $3,000, buy it, and walk away, and, and, and clean it up later. Um, it is almost that bad. I don't think you should... But I can tell you that if you did it, I wouldn't beat you up for it. Um, I know you're worried about your credit. And, um, I mean, my thing with credit scores always has been people get in debt and then they worry about the credit score. And the credit score is what got them in trouble in the first place. So I'm not real hip to worry about credit scores other than it can hurt you if you want to buy a home and land. And that's part of your future. And that that's where we want to try to preserve some things. Um Here's my concern for you. I went to Kelly Blue Book and ran the best case scenario I could. Every option, uh, excellent condition, under a hundred thousand miles, uh, biggest motor, etc. On an F two fifty, and the uh, the price I got was about thirty eight hundred dollars for a private party sale. That gives you a delta of about what uh, eight thousand dollars. So even if you were to get the best price you could possibly get for this truck, you would still have $8,000 you have to carry. And if you went out and bought a two or $3,000 vehicle, you're almost back where you started. And assuming this vehicle runs well, it doesn't make any sense at all. Then you're going to have a, you know, another two to $3,000 vehicle with you're still carrying the debt. So I, I you know, like, like I said, if, the, if, if you were to tell me, you know, 12 and it was worth nine, well, I'd say go sell it for nine. Carry the three, go buy a jalopy for fifteen hundred bucks and drive it. Pay the forty five hundred off and start over. But you don't have that option unless you misspoke. And this is a two thousand one. So if you can get eight, nine, ten thousand dollars for this vehicle, the answer is sell it and sell it now and carry the extra debt. Go find a piece of crap as long as it runs thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, something like that. Drive that beater for a year, and in a year you can get out of this mess with the same $400. If you're paying $400 on a $12,000 loan, you're paying back uh, roughly $4,800 a year with 30% interest, uh, you're probably looking at six years to pay the damn thing off. It's ridiculous. It cannot be done that way. If the vehicle is actually worth three or $4,000 and you owe $12,000 on it, you got to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with the lender. Um, if that's the case, they should have never lent you the money to buy the vehicle in the first place. And you've got to come up with some kind of new terms on the vehicle. And up until the point of, listen, um, I'm going to be very blunt about this. 
I owe $12,000 on a $4,000 truck. That's a problem, but I'm willing to work with you on it and pay for it because I made the mistake. Like you said, you take responsibility. But I'm not going to give you 30% interest on this anymore. If you can't come up with a meaningful reduction on my interest rate, I will drive the vehicle up onto your parking lot. I will put the keys in an envelope and drop them in your night drop box, and you can choke on it. You can either get $12,000 plus reasonable interest on this vehicle, Or you can get nothing. You can get a $3,000 vehicle if you're lucky at auction and nothing. And when they say, well, it'll destroy your credit. Tell them, my credit sucks already. I don't care. You do care. You don't want, and you may never go on the, you may never act on this threat. They don't need to know that. They can't do anything for you threatening not to pay. Understand that when dealing with any lender, folks. You can threaten not to pay them all they want, and you can pay them if there's like a late schedule, like you're allowed to pay seven days after the date. You can pay exactly on that date. They can't put a thing on your credit report. They can't do anything to you for threatening not to pay. Now, you can only play the game for so long, but it might get you somewhere. And what I would do is I would do a Kelly Blue Book assessment, and I would say, according to Kelly Blue Book, this vehicle is worth X. And when I bought it, the day you issued this loan, it was a bad loan. You should have given it to me because it was Y. Now, again... That's assuming that it was a 91 and there's not something that makes this... If it's worth $9,000 or more dollars, if you can sell this thing for anything close to nine grand, dump it. Because let me explain the math to you. You dump it, you're going to have to go to your lender and say, you're going to have to let me carry the note. But again, you threaten me, look, you don't let me do this. Or I'm going to walk. They'll do it. Right now you're carrying uh, $12,000 worth of debt. You're asking to carry three. They have the same recourse other than repossessing the vehicle, but in, in reality, that never works out for them anyway. This is down to your personal uh, ability to pay. You say, look, I'm not going to be able to pay this anymore. Here's my plan. This is what I've done, and, and they'll work with you on it. If, if it's worth three or four grand, you've got you to get strong on it, and then whatever you do on the interest rate is just gravy, and you've got to go start making more than minimum payments is the key here. If you can't pay for it, this may be a point where you are driving it up on the lot and returning it. I, every part of my ethics and ethos says not to do that. But if this is a $3,000 vehicle that you owe $12,000 on with a 30% interest rate, that is usury to the extreme. And what you have to then do is immediately, before you even turn it up on the lot, see if you can find a, a $1,200 car. And buy, even if you have $1,200 cash, put $900 down and, and finance $300. Or, you know, it's a $2,000 car, put $1,000 down, finance $1,000. Make good on that debt. That'll help buffer your credit situation. And when you go to buy your house or buy your land, you include a letter with your application. I've always paid on, on my, my housing expenses. This is the situation I was in with this vehicle. I did try to work with the lender. I contacted them six times before I defaulted on the debt. And you should probably, within five years, be able to buy land anyway. And you're probably at a point where you're not doing it for five years anyway. So, again, I know this doesn't sound like typical Jack Spearco advice, but I just keep seeing that blue book value at $3,800 and thinking, your vehicle's probably not in perfect condition and under 100,000 miles. So unless this is one of these like monster trucks with you know $5,000 worth of tires on it or something, um you got a real problem, and that's what you either do. You either get a, you either get them to play play ball with the interest rate, 
or tell them to choke on it. If it's worth seven to nine, anywhere in there, sell it, carry the spread, buy a jalopy. Best I can do for you. Sorry I can't do better. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, books are a great store of knowledge. And so what books should we have available? Because we can't possibly practice all of the crafts and skills that we're going to need um, in a big event. But it would be nice to have those books available so you have a fighting chance of learning how to do whatever it is you need. So if you had one foot of bookshelf, what would you put on it? Well, the best advice I can give you is go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on book list, and uh, look at the recommended books that I have there and select the ones that are kind of the best for you and your current needs because every one of those books on that list is on my bookshelf. There's a lot more books on my bookshelf that I need to add to that. Um, I think the best pre-disaster book that I could recommend for you is James Helmut Stevens' uh, Making the Best of Basics. It's the number one book on my list for a reason. Um, when it comes to planning and being preemptive, it's probably the best thing to do. You seem to be asking more about having the knowledge resource available in case you haven't had time to prepare or you haven't had time to learn a skill and now it should have hit the fan and I'm, you know, I don't want to be reading a book to figure out what to do, but that's what I've got to do now because I have a limited, as you said, a limited amount of time. Um, Tom Brown's book, uh, books are, are great. Uh, for that type of a, of a standpoint. And I think uh, the one I would recommend the most is uh, Tom Brown's Guide to City and Suburban Survival. Uh, I think that would be a, a really good book for most people to have because most books tend to focus on wilderness survival and most prepper libraries tend to be wilderness survival books. Another book I haven't fully read yet, but I'm very impressed with it so far, was sent to me uh, by the author. And I have a lot of books that have been sent to me by authors. I just haven't had time to go through yet. But this one is by a gentleman named Shame L. Painter. And it's called The Urban Survivalist Handbook. And I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes where you can find it today. And uh, I will also try to uh, to add this one to my book list uh, very soon and maybe update my book list very soon. It's, it's really, what I like about Shane's book, it's all practical stuff. It's all, here's exactly how to do these things. Uh, everything from, uh, from, from dealing, I mean, you name it, it's in here. Uh, how to store stuff, how to, you know, so it's, it's kind of preemptive. And then what to do after things have gone wrong. I think it's a great book. Um, there's a lot of great books out there. I think really, I can recommend books, and I even think that maybe once we get moved and I kind of make some adjustments and all, I may do a weekly book review, uh, 15 minutes one day a week where I review a particular book on a particular subject, and, and I'm glad people appreciate my recommendations, but the reality is I'm not going to buy a book on how to skin big game. Why? Because uh, I grew up as a kid uh, with an uncle and a father and a grandfather that taught me everything I needed to know about skinning big game. So I don't need that book. Now, if you're ever going to go hunting, and up until now, or you even you do, but up until now you've used a processor to do all of your, your skinning and, and quartering and things like that, a book on skinning big game might be perfect for you. Uh, so I don't have a lot of books on you know dealing with butchering big game on my book list because I don't need one. So what I'm kind of my message there is to sit down and write down the skill sets that you want, that you know, but you want to get stronger at the skill sets you know you should need to know, um, but 
you, you, you don't have time to learn right now. And the things that you're really concerned about um, getting more information on, make that list and then shop books based on your list. The problem for most people with anything, whether shopping for books or shopping for a car, is they don't make that prioritized list first. So they just kind of go out there and shop for anything, and whatever has the coolest cover or sounds the neatest or the marketing guy did the best job on the forward for or whatever, that's what they buy. So I think it's really a lot more personal than just my recommendations. Uh, of course, I love it when you go through my links and buy a, buy a book on Amazon or what have you because I make you know 30 cents or whatever. So I do appreciate that. And anybody that wants to buy anything from Amazon, uh, even if you don't buy a book, if you go through my links, you'll be supporting the show that way. And I sure as hell appreciate it when you do it. But it's more important to me that you put the right books in your library for your needs and your family's needs. The other thing I would recommend for a lot of people, books are a great way to evangelize. And if you can talk to that spouse or significant other that's not really into this, it may turn out that your wife really likes to cook. So maybe finding a cookbook on using preps. And um, we have one that was just sent I also really like. Let me see. I'm going to pause the recording right now and uh, see if I can find that book for you because I, I really think it's a good one to recommend as well. Okay, I found it. These are two books that we just recently got. One we purchased at the bookstore. And uh, this is something I'm looking forward to doing a lot of uh, YouTube videos with. It's by Isabel Webb. And it's 5-Minute Microwave Canning. It's actually how to can fruits, preserve, and chutneys in the microwave. I, I thought this was fabulous. Uh, I would have believed it possible if somebody would have told me in a bar, hey, man, you can stick a, a can with a metal ring around it inside a microwave and, mi and zap it, and it won't do any damage to the microwave, and you can actually can that way, but um, you can. And uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. You have to basically can things like you would um, in a uh, water bath canner, the same types of things. So, so, so something that needs a pressure canner can't be done. So you can't do meat. Can't do, you know, low acid things like most vegetables, like green beans, uh, or peppers or what have you. Though, you can do peppers and make a chutney by using vinegar to bring the acid up. So, um, let me again, this is by Isabel Webb. It's called the five minute microwave canning. And, uh, then another one, this was sent to me by the author, and I just haven't had a chance to uh, really put, do a review for it yet. But the recipes are fabulous, and it's called Jan's Fabulous Food Storage Recipes, like Jan LeBron, Baron. I'll try to find these on Amazon or wherever they are online and give you links in today's show notes. The reason I bring those up, though, is both of these are books that my wife looked at and went, oh, I'd like to look at that. I'd like to cook some things in that book. I'd like to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to do some microwave canning. I don't really, she's not really into the whole canning thing. It's a lot of work, but, you know, making up five jars in the microwave in this book, it, it's really easy. So this makes my wife more involved. So the, the thing I'm saying is on that bookshelf, that 12 inches of space, maybe it needs to be two feet of space, by the way, or four feet of space. I don't know. It's up to you, but maybe some of those books are about things that, your significant other would find interesting. Because let's look what happens when, you know, she looks and says, well, I want to make, um, you know, this whole wheat angel food cake, and one of the things in there is vanilla powder. Well, we need to add that to our, 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 our stores. Or, hey, we need three cups of uh, whole wheat flour. Do we have whole wheat flour? Yeah, honey, I have it in the storage. Get them using the storage, see? That's kind of my point with that. So those are some books. Uh, I do try to keep the book list ever growing and expanding, but really focus on what your needs are and try to use the book as a tool to get other family members involved. Let's take another question. 
Hi, Jack. I've got a career-related question for you. This is Rational Husker from the forum. I'm in a bit of a unique situation in that I'm very specialized in my career path and have a master's degree in an environmental engineering-related field and have the opportunity right now to work on a Ph.D. in environmental engineering while I'm working. Um, my employers allowed me to cut back my work hours partially but still keep me on full benefits while I'm working towards that Ph.D., and I'm just wondering if this is the right path to go down. I feel like I might be over-specializing myself. And it's also going to obviously take away some of the time that I was hoping to spend gaining some skills and working on my preps. So I wanted to get your take on this. In case you're interested, um, my research actually is specific to ag engineering with soil and water conservation. So I, I get a good dose of big government behind the scenes and big ag. So kind of a double whammy that way, but I'm hoping to eventually use that uh, to work for some kind of um, economic think tank, uh, free market, uh, uh, Austrian economic-minded think tank, and put those research skills to good use. So that's my question. I know it's really, really out there, maybe not something that applies to a lot of your listeners, but you always do a good job of making things apply to everyone, so hopefully you'll take my call. Thanks, Jack. Well, generally, when I hear someone specializing to the level of Ph.D., I, I, I'm a little concerned as to whether that specialization is really going to pay off for them long term. They're going to be anything other than a professor in, in, in college uh, and trying to get tenured as a professor or working in some highly specialized field that there's never enough people for. In your case, I have no concerns whatsoever, though. I, I Unless it doesn't fit for you, unless you don't want to do the work, it's not really your passion, that type of thing. Um, I think you're in a, I mean, soil and water conservation research uh, for a Ph.D. Um, you're talking about one of the most pressing problems for the future. You're in, the, you're in ground zero of a disaster that is coming that doesn't have to happen and working on the solution to it. And your specialization is never going to be less important in, in the foreseeable future, in a human lifetime. If you were some prodigy and you were 12 years old getting this PhD, you wouldn't outlive the usefulness of it. We are going to have to worry about conserving our soil and water for as long as anybody hearing me today is going to be alive. And the problem is likely to get worse every single year. Now, it's true that if your research is funded, it's going to push you toward what the government and Monsanto want. And what Conagra wants and what have you. But, see, the soil and water conservation is a little bit different. There are so many things we could do to fix that. I would tell you that unless this doesn't fit you, Grab onto it and do the best you can with it. And make the most out of the opportunity that you have. And don't worry so much about whether or not you're going to go work for a libertarian think tank. I'm not that big on think tanks. I'm, on, I'm bigger on action tanks. If you can develop methodologies and get them tested on any scale and prove their effectiveness, this is one thing people don't understand. Monsanto and Conagra and Department of Agriculture and all don't do the stuff they do because they hate the planet, they hate you, and they want to poison you and destroy the earth. 
They're motivated. Now that's the results. Don't think I'm sticking up for them. But the, but they but they do this because they want money. Never attribute to malice that which can be explained through incompetence or through the desire for profit. Okay, and that's it's malice, and I know it's malicious, but I don't really care about the malice. It's uh, it's collateral damage to these people. They're really after the almighty buck. If you can demonstrate a way to conserve water and soil, that is extremely profitable. That That's something that anybody in the ag sector is going to be interested in because I can now grow more with less. That goes directly to the bottom line. So, And how does this apply to everybody? One, you, better, you guys better be prepared for declining food production. We're about to go into food riots again this year. Trust me, by this summer there will be food riots in the, somewhere in the world. And I'll say as big or worse than 2008s. So that I'm not just, you know, hey, look, one guy was upset and threw a potato at somebody in the Philippines. I don't mean that. I mean, we're going to have 2008-level food riots this year and worse. And that problem is going to keep getting worse. So that's how, the other way it applies to other people is, folks, you guys are probably saying, well, I'm not a Ph.D. candidate and working in ag, you know agriculture and environmental sciences or whatever, but you're going to have to make career decisions in your life. And this is exactly how you make them. Am I passionate about this? Do I care about this? And what's the future of this career? And if, if, if there's no future in the career, if you're going to specialize in what a bug's foot looks like, you know, just to make something up out of thin air, there's no real future in that unless it's just something that you don't care if you ever make any money at. It's just your thing. You'll find something else to do. If you're developing your specialty and expertise in an area that addresses a critical problem that humanity is going to deal with for the next century or more, man, bite onto it, grab onto it, make the most of it. It also makes me think of this old saying, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? Yeah, you're rating right ground zero for big ag. And a lot of things that they do is bad. But I'd rather have a guy like you that's aware in the middle of that fight than standing on the sidelines yelling about it. Alright, great question. Wish you the best. I'm going to recommend you go for this. Uh, you have to look at your personal life and see if it fits for that. But if it does, go for it and make the most of it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. First of all, great show. This is Tracy Man of Texas. Got a quick question about food storage. My wife and I are storing our own food or creating our own long-term food with some good buckets, you know, with some good rubber seals and all that and some mylar bags and O2 absorbers. But I'm trying to think out of the box for different items in there. One item I was thinking about putting in there was some different types of cereal. I'm not talking like cereal grains, actual cereal. Do you know of any, I couldn't find this anywhere online, I tried searching for it. Do you know of any cereal that would long-term store? Well, I know maybe not the 20, 30 years, but... Cheerios, Corn Flakes, or something like that, that would store longer term in the Mylars and the O2 absorbers in the containers and all that. Because we got the powdered milk and all that. That might just be a little variety compared to everything else. Uh, great show. Talk to you later. Bye. I'm going to take a completely different approach with this than you're asking for. Uh, instead of you know advising you go out and buy a bunch of Fruit Loops and uh, and put ten ten boxes of them into one giant Mylar bag and O2 absorb them and and and, and bucket pack them, I'm going to suggest that maybe you go out and get something like Rubbermaid totes uh, and you leave them in the box. 
And you store a one-year supply of cereal based on your current consumption. Now, why one year? Well, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the big discount stores, like a Sam's or a Costco, where they bring in fresh merchandise all the time with stuff like this. And there's going to be a big pallet of uh, Fruit Loops or whatever, and whatever it is you eat. And I don't think you should eat Fruit Loops. I'm just kind of making light of it a little bit. Uh, but, you, you know, your Cheerios or whatever, your good cereal. Go to the pallet that they haven't even opened yet, if you can reach it, or go to the back or go to the bottom, whatever's behind it, and you're going to find that most boxes of cereal are going to have a shelf life of roughly one year. And what I want you to do is I want you to do an assessment. How much of this stuff do you eat? And I want you to store a year's worth of cereal. In your eat what you store, store what you eat plan, I want you to do it in organized fashion, items to the front, what have you, in rubber-made tubs. And whenever you eat a box of cereal and it's gone... Actually, as soon as you pull it out of the tub and put it in the pantry, the next time you go to the store, that's on your list, and it goes in the back of the last tub. And you just keep rotating it through. Now, why do I say to do that? Because if you eat about that much in a year, in a, a scenario where you're relying on your preps, it'll probably be at least six months' worth. Maybe you'll eat more cereal because it's one of the things you have stored. But you got six worth, months' worth of storage there, and how much do you really need? And because... I don't believe that you're going to extend the life of something like a Cheerio by very much by opening it, exposing it to more of the atmosphere, and then placing it into a bucket. And how much do you really need? I mean, that's that's the other side of this. How much do you really need to store? So I think that you would be, you know, it's, it's such an easy thing. Now, if you don't eat cereal, hmm. <clears throat> I, I, then they'll store it. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Uh, if it's not something that you generally consume, I, and I would also say this, you could store a year's worth, um, you could store, if you, you could basically say whatever you, you eat in a year, you could store more than that. Uh, remember that the, the labels that say it's expired, not really mean, the food, you know, it says September, uh, 15th, 2012. Well, if you can eat it on September 15th, 2012, you can probably eat it on September 16th. So you can stretch those dates a little bit. But basically the way we store our cereal is we store it based on our consumption. We don't eat a lot of it, so we don't really store that much of it. Uh, but we have, you know, at any one point, there's quite a bit of it as part of our preps. It's good stuff. It tastes good. It's easy to prepare and what have you. And on days where you're stuck home and you can't leave and uh, you don't really feel like cooking, it's it's there and it's available. And of course, like you said, you mix some powdered milk up with it or canned can, you know, canned milk, and you know you, you you dilute that a little bit because it is condensed. Um, you can uh, or evaporated. The condensed is is that sweet syrupy stuff but the evaporated milk you know you can use that as a milk substitute it doesn't taste good in a glass but with cereal or something like that it works just fine so uh that's my recommendation for you on that uh get some rubber made tubs uh put put a numbering sequence on them uh rotate your food the first thing i would do though is for the next two to three weeks record your cereal consumption what brands uh, how much, uh, how long a box would last for you, and base your storage on a year of current consumption. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Brian Bayless here in Tennessee. Uh, I've been listening to your show for about uh, six, eight months. And I don't know if you ever watched Dirty Jobs on Discovery, but this last Tuesday they had an episode reviewing the infrastructure of America and having the grades uh, from engineers on the condition of those infrastructure systems. 
And the one with the best grade was the solid waste system. However, they showed a house where a nearby pumping station had quit pumping and everything had backed up into her basement toilet. My question is, is there anything that you are aware of or that you would recommend to, that could be done to shut this off or prevent this from happening if there was a situation that uh, power was lost for a long period of time? Maybe a shutoff valve on the sewer line or a like a backflow preventer or something. Love to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Uh, on the show, it's one of the, I think I've watched like one or two episodes. One was with pig farming and another one I don't remember, but I like the guy. I like the concept of the show. It's just something I never seem to make time for. There's only so much time we have, so I'm not real familiar with it. But I, I understand the concept of the show, and I think it's a, it's a good idea, and I think it's been successful because of that. Um, my big issue here, though, is I don't really have a good answer for you on the actual question. Um, what do you do to keep your sewer from backing up? I don't know. I don't know if it's legal in most municipalities to put some sort of a backflow preventer on the sewer line coming out of your home, and it would be difficult to retrofit. Your sewer lines go straight down out of most uh, uh, foundations and are quite deep. If your home is, uh, like most Americans, a slab foundation, even getting access to it, it's going to be a very deep hole. And uh, you know, cause you're gonna have to basically dig up the line after it's exited the structure of the home, and it's 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 on its downward slope out. And I don't know how sewer systems are as far as is it your pipe just because it's on your land once it exits your house. Um, I don't have a good answer for this. So instead of just talking about it, I'm just gonna put it out to the to, to the audience. If anybody does, please let us know on today's show notes and I'll share it on the show. Please don't, when you guys have feedback for me like this, the best thing for you to do, go to the survivalpodcast.com, pull up the episode in question. If it's an older one, you know, stick the number in and look it up and post it in the comments thread so that everybody can see it, so that everybody can contribute to it. When you just email it to me, it's in that vast vault of 600 emails a day. Plus, you know, all the spam and all the other crap. So it's best on the blog. That way I'm going to eventually find it, get to it, and use it. Uh, but I don't know the answer to this one, uh, so help me out, folks. What are some measures that we can take to prevent sewer backflow into our own homes? Uh, let's go ahead and take a, uh, another call. Hey, Jack. Jeff from Tennessee, 10 man on the forum. I'm going to drive back from Gonzales, Texas, to Tennessee. I just want to share a comment with you was down there on a hog hunt, wild hog hunt, with a couple of friends of mine. And uh, just want to let everybody know that it's, this is a great thing for people to get involved in. Uh, I've got about 200 pounds of fresh pork with me going home. It also proves that a shotgun is a very effective weapon uh, for that kind of game. So uh, just want to encourage everybody to get involved in their hunting communities. Um, there's a lot of things that can be learned uh, from that craft. Uh, marksmanship uh, skills, and there's just so much things that, that you can learn. Uh, so just get involved and talk to your your hunting friends. And uh, it's also wild hog hunting, something you can do year round. And uh, I would highly encourage you to do that. And I picked up some new buddies now from Wisconsin all the way to Texas. So uh, I will be back. And uh, like I said, uh, it's a good thing for everybody to think about doing. And Jack, I appreciate everything you do, and uh, look forward to hearing more in the future. Thanks, man.
Oh man, now you got me wanting to do a show all about hog hunting. It, it, it's one of my favorite things to do uh, here in Texas, and there's there's so many ways to do it too. And first, I want to say your recommendation is well received, and I think for a lot of people, um, especially if you're new to hunting and you'd like uh, a real good opportunity to to take some game, it's probably the most uh, high success rate. And uh, most affordable thing you can do uh, with a guided hunt on private land. There's a lot of places in Texas that you can hunt hogs for 250 to $700 and anywhere in between. And and obviously, most most of the time, places you're going to pay a little bit more. You're going to have more game, larger animals, things like that. A little bit more, um, uh, let's say, service level. The service level is a little bit higher. Not always the case, though. I mean, there's a lot of... The, the thing is, there's so many of them damn things down here. And a sow could drop anywhere between six and twelve piglets and do that two or three times a year. They're really to the level of a nuisance animal, except that I don't really consider them that much of a nuisance because I like to go out and shoot them and eat them. And um, pork from a wild hog, that lean uh, pork is in, in a you know natural uh, environment. Again, as organic as it gets, uh, you're not gonna. It's not gonna taste anything like what you've been getting from Kroger's or, or Winn Dixie or whatever. Um, so uh, definitely think it's something you should look at doing. I want to point a couple things out though. In addition uh, to just the basic getting out and hunting and the affordability. Uh, number one, a lot of you guys that are new to hunting and maybe you've gone out and popped a squirrel or a rabbit or two, you, and you but you've started deer hunting and you just haven't had success yet. You've never had to deal with making the shot. And there is no substitute. I don't care how many holes you can put in a silhouette or a target and how tight your groups are from 100 yards or 200 or 3. I don't care how far you can shoot. When you lay your crosshairs on a live animal and the shot really counts and you have time to think and you can hear your heartbeat in your ears, it's a different experience. And it's something you want to master before you need it. So I think it's a great way to have the experience. For a lot of guys that are just getting into bow hunting, man, that's a great big game animal to get that first or second opportunity on with with the bow. And uh, the other thing I want to tell you is, he's right, a shotgun's a great uh, tool for hunting these things. If you start reading about hogs, you're going to read about them like there's some kind of supernatural thing. Like you need a, a, a you know a elephant gun to shoot a hog, bullets bounce off them. Bullshit. All right, now I wouldn't go out there with a 22 or even a 38 special or what have you, um, but any rifle that's sufficient for taking deer is going to work on hogs. Now there are some big boars out there, and and they do require a little bit heavier caliber stuff. But when you're looking at, you know, so maybe are you maybe a little bit undergunned with a 30-30 on a 400 pound boar, uh, maybe. Um, but shoot it twice, and it'll probably work itself out. But things like 306, 270, your conventional deer calibers that most people are carrying are more than sufficient for you handgun hunters. I'm not real hip on the 357 for larger hogs, but for most of the feral stuff that's running around out there, that's you know pigs that are 75 to 200 pounds, it's more than sufficient. You don't want hollow points, obviously. But really, where I was going with the handgun hunting, it's another great big game animal to kind of cut your teeth on. The thing about hogs is they smell incredibly well. I don't mean they smell good. I mean their sense of smell is is, is very very good. Their sense of hearing is very very good. But especially once they get a little bit bigger and those fat rolls come down, their vision's terrible. So they're an animal that 
in the right environment where they're prolific and what have you, it's easier than, let's say, a deer to get those handgun, uh, archery, uh, crossbow range shots. And then the all-year thing is awesome. And I'm going to make one more piece of advice on this. Don't go to a state like Texas to hunt hogs during especially the height of deer season. Because most of the ranches are kind of dual-purpose ranches, and you can hunt deer or hogs. And if you go hunt hogs in March or September or something like that, man, you're going to get first-class treatment. If it's if it's the middle of deer season, and they got guys in there that are paying four or five thousand dollars for trophy deer hunts, you're just kind of extra baggage at that point. And they don't mean to do it, but I mean, just when you're running a business and you have so many customers, you have to prioritize. And the guy that's spending $4,000 that's ordered a full-service hunt, he's going to get that full-service. And basically what you've bought with a hog hunt is, we'll take you out where the hogs are, leave you there, and you can shoot them. But you're going to get more personal interaction, and you're going to get better education and more talking to. If the, if the camp isn't completely full of people that are paying ten times what you are. So I'm not saying it's always going to happen. I'm just saying, you know, and the other side of that is, why not take advantage of the extended season and go prior to or after? The other thing, though, is, you know, you can go hunt them in June. It's awful hot in, in Texas in June, though. Uh, so definitely have a plan to get your meat home. It's a little bit more con- in consideration of the heat. And uh, you got to deal with insects and snakes and everything else. So uh, I'm not big on hunting hogs in June, July, August. Uh, but the rest of the year, great fun and a great way. And you guys with kids... That have been trying to get that kid that first deer, and you haven't pulled it off yet. Hey, deer season's just about over everywhere in the country now. I think it is over everywhere. Uh, I don't know anywhere where deer are still legal. Great time to book that hog hunt. Take that junior hunter out there and get him the confidence that comes with that first successful harvest. Uh, great call. Thank you for that. Uh, wish I would have known you were down here in Texas, so I'd try to hook up with you. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jeff in New Mexico. Love what you're doing, man. I just got a real simple question for you. I was wondering if you knew a way to actually make sure that your jalapenos are going to come out hot. I've heard different methods. Some people say you should flood them before you pick them, or also some people say that you should starve them to make them hot. I was wondering if you actually knew a good way to make the peppers hot. Usually people are asking the exact opposite. What do I do to make my jalapenos mild? Uh, The good news is I have the same answer for you on either side of it. It's more about the variety than anything else. Um, You want to maximize the heat of a pepper. If they have to struggle a little bit water-wise, they tend to end up with coming out a little bit hotter. But I, I, I am real hesitant to recommend starving them water-wise. I think that if you if you flood them like they were telling you, if anything, that's going to reduce the at least the perceived heat. And a lot of with jalapenos, it's more perception of the heat than the actual heat level. Jalapenos are not that hot of a pepper to begin with, um, relatively speaking. Even something like a serrano is almost twice as, as, as hot if we look at Scoville units and if we look at something like a... Uh, Oh, I don't know, like a Scotch bonnet or a habanero or something like that. We're, we're night and day difference in the heat. But if you look, just you know, you're you're, you're generally speaking, your um, your your heirloom varieties jalapenos are going to be very hot because these haven't been tampered with. So you're at your your natural state of the pepper. 
But another thing with jalapenos is ripening. There are many peppers, many hot peppers, that the longer they stay on the vine and the redder they become, the hotter they become. Mariachi hybrids are a good example. They're, they kind of look like a jalapeno, uh, thick wall, a little bit squatter. Um, they grow kind of like a yellow and then to an orange and almost to a pinkish red. They're a great tasting pepper. Yeah, they're a hybrid, but you know you can buy a pack of seeds for two bucks and and grow hundreds of them before you run out of seeds. So they're a pepper I grow, even though that they're a hybrid. When they're yellow, unless you eat the seeds, like just eat the whole seed, you could just cut them up and eat them like a banana pepper. They taste more like a banana pepper than a hot pepper. By the time they're red, those things will burn you. They get hot. You know, they're called a mild, they're supposed to be much milder than a jalapeno. Well, it's all about when you pick them. With a jalapeno, I find it just the reverse to be true. As they become red, their heat level goes down. Now, I don't think it really goes down. I think what happens is the natural sugar content in them increases. And since they're, a jalapeno is very thick-walled as far as most hot peppers go, that, that sugar balances the heat. So one thing you can do with your jalapenos to end up with hotter perceived flavor is pick them before they begin to redden. But then the other thing I'm going to tell you, if your jalapenos aren't hot enough, find a large variety serrano and grow serranos. They have better flavor and they're hotter anyway. They're generally a smaller pepper, um, but uh, you know there are some fairly large variety serranos, and you can go to other pepper varieties. But stick with your heirloom variety jalapenos, and you're going to get plenty of heat. Most of the things that have been done to pull the heat down in jalapenos have been done with the hybrids and modern breeding uh, with the exact opposite intention to allow people that don't like the heat to get the flavor of the jalapenos so there you go uh, not one that I've ever really had much of a problem with if you really want to kind of do this long term take a full mature pepper off of all your plants and eat a piece of each one and determine which plant or which two plants produce the hottest pepper that year. Only save seeds from that, that those plants. And then next year do it again, and next year do it again. And just like any other trait, you can breed it into your own heirloom stock. Uh, but like I said, again, look at your, when you buy your seeds, look at your, your jalapeno varieties and pick the varieties that are particularly noted for heat level uh, being higher versus lower. Even if you're buying plants from a nursery, find the varieties you're looking for, then find a nursery selling you those plants. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Diego in South Florida. Long-time fan. Uh, you've helped me out in the past. Uh, you might know me at Spice89. Um, the reason I'm calling is that because, uh, you know, of this is your show and you've enlightened me, and I've recently purchased 40 acres of, of beautiful uh, land in North Florida, about five hours uh, away from where I live. Uh, it's a other location slash future homestead. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, right now the land is planted pine, beautiful, love it, uh, has a great feeling, um, but, you know, the, the soil, you know, is absolute sand. Uh, you know, you lived in Florida for a while, so you know what I'm talking about. There's not, there's nothing living organic about the soil. You could dig down, you know, five, six, seven feet, and are you going to get a sand? So how do I go about transforming that into the rich, living, organic soil that I need? Because I want to start planting my long-term vision of permaculture with the food forest. Uh, but if I start planting things right now, there's very few things that I, that I can live in that soil other than uh, blueberries and raspberries and, uh, you know, uh, uh, pomegranate maybe and persimmon. I do have wild persimmon growing. So I'm going to start with that. 
but that's very limited. And I want to be able to create a you know food forest with a lot of diversity to encourage uh, you know the layers that are necessary. So how do I go about transforming this sand into organic matter that I can use? Keeping in mind that it's about a two-acre clearing right now that I have in the center of the property, and then there's a total of 40 acres. So obviously I can't afford to you know haul in a bunch of compost to cover the entire land. So I, I'm at a loss of where to begin. So any help that you can provide, I'd appreciate it. Um, big fan, great show. Please keep it. Um, well, I don't know what happened to you there at the end. You got cut off, but I got every bit I need to answer this question. First, let me tell you, one, congratulations. Two, I'd be lying if I wasn't a little bit jealous. Uh, you know, I did live in Florida as a young kiddo. and ran around in the swamplands there, and I know exactly what you mean about, you know, endless pines and sandy soil. And some of my best years were spent running around in that environment with the creeks that ran through there and doing stupid things that I did as a kid, like play with water moccasins and pygmy rattlers and some eastern diamondbacks on rare occasions and tormenting alligators and you name it, we did it, catching snapping turtles. So, um, man, I would, I'd, I'd love to have your problem. Let me just put it to you this way. And it's not a, as big a problem as I, I think you might think it is. Um, first, I'm very glad that you understand that you're going to work with the two acres first. And you're not going to start plowing down all these pine trees because they're some kind of evil thing. They're not. They're, they're doing tremendous work right now to prevent soil erosion. And I would encourage you highly that as you finish off whatever you're going to do with this two acres, and you start going into uh, clear out other places to expand, you do very small blocks, half acre to an acre at most at a time, and you leave those clearings surrounded by pines to, to, to use that natural vegetation and start trying to replace some of the pines with some hardwoods. Uh, the sandy soil, obviously, you know, like you said, you can't cover two acres with compost, but what you can do is start to plant as many things as you can uh, that produce productive litter. Now, the problem with pine needles is they're not a very productive litter. They don't do a lot to build soil. They are highly acidic. Now, don't worry about the acid to the level that most people would in your environment. Your soil is not as acidic as you think it is. Now, it is on the surface. But acid layers, pH layers in soil stratify. And I can take you to places and I can show you acid-loving blueberries growing next to very neutral-loving plants, neutral-soil-loving plants, two feet away from each other. And they're both doing fine. And why? Because if we, if we don't turn the soil, we leave it stratify, the plants will put roots down to the stratification level where their preferred pH is, And they will spread out into that stratification level, and they will spend most of their time at that level. So don't over-worry about this. So what you need to be doing is planting nitrogen fixers um, that produce lots of leaf litter. You need to start doing chop and drop with this place. Now, here's the beauty. Oh, my God, you live in a wonderful place. And the stuff you've already talked about, persimmon and pomegranate and stuff like that, it will do so wonderful for you there. Some of the other things you can look at growing, plums do beautiful in northern Florida. Absolutely phenomenal place to grow. Plums, nectarines, peaches, your apple pear stuff, that's going to be a lot tougher. I wouldn't even mess with that much until you get on site. If you want to plant a few and see if it works out, fine. The big thing you got going for you, even though it's sandy soil, and even though the, you know it doesn't do real good with water retention, the rainfall level is great. Um, you can plant almost anything that's a perennial, a vine, a tree, a bush, and odds are that if you just plant it in the ground, it's going to make it. If you, especially if you plant it in the wet springtime, 
Um, it's good, by the time summer comes and you do get some dry days, it's going to have no problem surviving without you there. So, man, plant away. Plant as many things as you can that are deciduous or nitrogen-fixing, and plant some trees that you don't really want long-term. Plant some trees that you want to let get up to, you know, fast-growing deciduous trees that will get up to about six to eight feet fast, and every time you go, cut them down to four feet and throw it right on the ground. The more of that you do, the more soil you'll build right in place. Grow your own organic matter. You can plant plots and things like buckwheat and other cover crops to begin building organic matter. You could grow three to four crops of buckwheat in a single summer. Grow it up till it's, you know, until it starts to flower. Maybe let it flower a little bit to bring in some pollinators and encourage that. Cut it down. Plant it again. Grow it. Cut it down. Plant it again. Grow it. Cut it. Do that all the way up. Go into your winter, plant some uh, winter-hardy legumes right where the buckwheat was. Maybe some vetch uh, and some bell bean. Grow that through your Florida winter. When it, when it comes to spring, cut it down. Plant buckwheat there again. Do whatever you can to keep piling up the organic matter other than the frickin' pine needles. Because the one thing you'll find in the pine forest, other than ferns and palmettos, you pull that pine back, that pine uh, 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 needle back, Nothing grows under that stuff. It's bare soil under there. And it's very poor quality. You might have a tiny, thin layer of decomposed needles that's, that's black. And you can just basically blow it off, and it's that, that sand, uh, sandy soil Florida has underneath it. But more and more organic matter. And do consider things like swelling and things like that. I highly recommend go download yesterday's show, 606, Parmaculture Design Considerations, and use that as you decide what to do with this property. But just the big thing to understand is you can grow almost anything in Florida. As a kid, I grew, I took popcorn and, and grew it out, out, and, you know, outside of my apartment as a kid, and it grew. People said, that won't grow. It grew. They did produce really great ears, but it grew and it produced ears. Um, it's one of the greatest um, underutilized agricultural environments in the world. Your soil will always be sandy. It will always have poor retention of water, but there's plenty you can do with it, and there's so much natural rainfall that you can get away with so much there. So maximize it. The big thing you want to do is be planting. Go ahead and put some long-term stuff in. I mean, you've got a place where the rainfall alone is going to set you free, right? So put some, but put in some nitrogen-fixing trees and, and things like that, uh, and definitely nitrogen-fixing uh, annuals. And, and the beauty is with all the rainfall you get there, you can just basically go out and, and you know, rough the, the area up you're going to, and just hand throw the stuff there. It's going to grow for you. So, man, make the most of this one. And I'd love to see some pictures of it, some progress. And if you get into specific applications, please call back in or email back in. I'll do what I can to help you develop this. I, I would love to be there doing it with you. Again, congratulations. And, folks, this is what happens when you plan for success. Um, you end up with 40 acres in North Florida. And, and worry that there's too many pine trees. What a great problem to have. Thanks for the call, and thanks for helping me relive some of my uh, childhood, especially some of the really positive parts about it. Let's take one more question before we wrap up today. Hi, Jack. I was listening to your past answer to my question, and you mentioned um, lights for growing and that they need a uh, UV light. Because um, I had tried planting uh, some, or sprouting some tomatoes, and most of I was just testing and I did it back in September and then all of a sudden they just kind of withered and died I didn't know if I overwatered them, over fertilized them what, 
Um, but then when you mentioned lighting, and I figured the lighting might not have been enough because they were only by a window, um, and we didn't get a lot of light. Um, I have a black light. Would that work for providing the UV? Um, rather just use something I have than go out and buy a whole low light for a hundred bucks. Um, let me know. Thanks. Just one of those, you know, little black light fluorescent things you get for parties and stuff. Thanks, Jack. Well, there's an easy one to answer, dude. No. Black light will not be good for growing your, your seedlings and your plants. You need a full UV spectrum light. You see, this is the thing that most people don't understand. It goes into global warming, but I'll leave that alone for the day. When we look at light, we just see light. And we don't realize that there's lots of wavelengths in there. And if you take a pencil and you draw a wavy line, you know, like a up and down, up and down, up and down, that's kind of how the wavelengths look. And there's a full spectrum there of, of wavelengths that are very long and wavelengths that are very short. And there's a whole grouping of those wavelengths that plants need to survive. So if we stick them under an incandescent bulb, they'll grow for a time, but they never thrive. We give them sunlight, they grow. Because sunlight is a full UV spectrum light. How does that tie into global warming? Just real quick. There's only a few segments of the spectrum that actually are reflected by CO2. And most of those wavelengths are already reflected at what's called a saturation capacity. So we're at a point where scientifically, and no one can disprove this, and every time I bring it up, it just kills the debate on global warming, where if we put a ton more CO2 in the atmosphere, it's not that CO2 doesn't reflect light, it's not that it doesn't add temperature, it's that it's done most of what it's capable of doing at its current level. And most of what would be up there if we added, we doubled it, would be unemployed molecules. But those wavelengths not only do things like certain wavelengths do and do not um, uh, are, are do or do not get blocked by CO2 molecules, certain wavelengths do or do not make plants grow well. And they need that full spectrum to do well. So you need a full spectrum UV light. Now here's the thing, you don't have to spend 100 bucks. Um, you can go get a basic plant grow light at like a Walmart for between nine and fifteen dollars. And the bulb is more important than the fixture. So you can take, if you have an existing fixture, you can go buy a UV, you know, fluorescent UV uh, light, stick it in that fixture, and it's just as good as if it was in any other fixture, other than if the fixture's junk and, and burns out on you. Now, what I actually did last year and put it up, and I, I should make sure that everybody sees this that hasn't already, um, is I built a grow light system for about $30. I took three of these lights, so I'd have a lot of UV light, I got a great big long Rubbermaid tub and some scrap plywood so there was something to bolt it to and four pieces of all thread and attached the, uh, the plywood to the top of the Rubbermaid tub with some screws and some washers so it didn't pull through the plastic and then I mounted the three lights to the three, to the, to the scrap plywood and I drilled four holes through with all thread to make a stand and put some nuts on them so you could adjust the lid of the thing up and down. And then you put your plants in the Rubbermaid tub. That way you can water them and if it, if it gets overwatered, the water doesn't go anywhere. It sits in a tub and uh, eventually evaporates. And then you set this, this grow light fixture down over top of it. 30 bucks and I could start about 40 to 60 plants depending on the size of the pots I used in that system and they got that full, full UV light. For those that are starting seeds and have done it in the past and have had failures, this is what generally happens. You put that little seed in there, and up it comes. And you're all excited. And then all of a sudden, like in a day, it'll grow like two inches tall. And you're like, wow, look at it grow. And it's really thin. 
And then he just falls over and dies. Well, why did that happen? Because the light, and this is 100% of the time, this is what happened when you see that result. The light you provided, it was insufficient and didn't provide a broad spectrum of, of wavelength. So the little plant, did it just spent all the energy stored in its seed as fast as possible growing up because it's programmed to go up. It's looking for light. And when it doesn't find the light that it needs and it can't effectively practice the photosynthetic process and feed itself, it actually starves to death. No matter how much fertilizer, no matter with the temperature, no matter what you do, if it doesn't get enough of the right wavelengths of light, it can't do photosynthesis and it dies. Black lights won't do that for you. So you need to go out and get a full spectrum UV grow light. Um, but you don't have to spend a hundred bucks. You could get three, build the system. I'll place the uh, YouTube link for you today and do that for about 30 bucks uh, for total cost. And you don't need three of them. I just did it because it was, uh, and I got better results with it. I will tell you that. Uh, so with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today. Great questions, guys. Remember, I am going up to the bug out location on Friday. I'm going to try to get a Friday show out for you. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm damn well going to do my best. I will be uh, doing a show tomorrow before I leave. Uh, tomorrow evening or so so uh, there will be a show tomorrow and uh, I may do another call in show because I have a backlog of about a hundred of these calls but I want you to keep them coming remember if you want to be on a show like this 866-65-THINK I will try to get you on the air and with that this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.